Good evening, everybody. We are in our sixth week of our sermon series, Imagine That. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Philippians 2. We're going to pick up where we left off last week as we've been imagining together these qualities and characteristics of the kingdom of God, these qualities of Jesus that he exemplifies that the Bible calls us to imagine for ourselves, to picture what these would look like in our world and and to make it so. We're hearing these so that we can imagine them and, and make them come alive in our lives as well. This evening we focus on Philippians 2 verses 6 through 7. Let me read for us, beginning in verse 3, where we looked last week at humility. This week, our message titled, Service. Hopefully you got the the handout there at the door. Philippians 2.3 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. A man named Franz Mohr died last year in April. You may not know that name, few people do, but he has played the piano more in Carnegie Hall than anybody else in history. At least we assume that much. Moore was the the chief technician for the world-famous piano makers Steinway and Sons. Uh, Last year, his obituary was published in the New York Times on April 17th. It said sometimes a string would snap or a pedal would need adjusting during a concert and he would step into the spotlight for a moment. But he did much of his work alone. On that famous stage with others around the world, he might have been mistaken for a pianist trying out a nine-foot grand for a recital. But then he would reach for his tools and start making minute adjustments, giving a Tuning pin, a tiny twist there, or a hammer, a slight shave. For years, wherever the piano players went, he went. He made house calls to the most famous pianos all around the world. I read a story after I read this one about how he took Bibles with him to concerts in Leningrad and Moscow in days when that was not allowed. Henry Steinway's boss once said, To understand Franz, one must understand that his Christian faith is at the core of his being. It affects everything he says and does. Just before his death, Franz Moore last year said that he was most grateful that his life allowed him to be faithful in the little things. It was he that claimed about himself, I play the piano more in Carnegie Hall than anybody else. 
but I have no audience. And today we look together at service. And we're reminded that the greatest in the kingdom of God are not always the ones with the greatest audience. Not the ones who perform in front of the most people. Sometimes the most faithful people are the ones that nobody knows can even play the instrument. They just spend time tuning it day by day, preparing things for other people, laying the groundwork for the music to happen. It's a song that I read for us this evening, actually. We were reminded last week that Philippians 2 is, is this hymn that Paul bursts into to explain the, the life of Jesus in detail. It can be neatly divided into three stanzas if we think about it. These three stanzas are kind of the major movements of our Lord's whole career, if, a, if career is the right word to use. In that first stanza, we get a song about Jesus' pre-earthly existence. What was it like before he came to us? And then in verse 7 and 8, it sings of Jesus' earthly existence, telling us of what it was, was that Jesus went from Bethlehem to Calvary. And then there's a third stanza, verses 9 and 11, where Jesus' post-earthly existence, a time of stretching from Bethlehem to Calvary to the present and on into the future. And we were reminded last week that uh, sometimes we like to sing verses 1 and 2, or excuse me, verses 1 and 3, and like any number of hymnals in your good Baptist hymnal there in front of you, few of us remember the words to the one in the middle. The first and the last, like a good worship service. Why is it uh, that we love Jesus' glorification, but we spend less thinking about the one who lowered himself? The Swiss theologian Emil Brunner once suggested that, uh, that Jesus' life and ministry, his whole existence from before coming to earth to after could, could be drawn like a parabola. Maybe you remember that little shape from math class. With movement one being Jesus' career at the beginning, the heights of glory with the Father from the beginning, as we've always believed. And then through progressively deeper and deeper stages of what Philippians 2 says was a self-emptying, he descends down into the depths of being human accepts all of what that means to live inside the human condition before and because he accepted that full descent, he's then exalted to the highest place in the universe. The hymn lays out before us that shape of Jesus' heavenly, earthly, and heavenly again work. And with that threefold movement, Philippians tells us that all of this sort of hinges, that all of this comes about because of a decision that Jesus made in his pre-earthly existence. In verse 6, the hymn sings, He did not regard, or maybe we'd say, He did not consider. He did not consider. You know, the whole of salvation history flows down from that beginning opening line that Jesus, existing in glory with the Father, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But instead, lowered himself, emptied himself, 
taking the form of a servant. Verse 6 says, Although he was in the form of God, although he was in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God something to be taken advantage of. See, there's two uh, meanings of that little word was in Greek, that it could mean uh, to exist or simply to be or to have possession of something. It, it, we're reminded in Philippians that in Jesus' pre-earthly state, as he sits in glory with God, he existed and possessed all that belongs to God. He was fully God in the form of God. And yet he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Which is why, just before going to the cross, Jesus can pray those words that you remember, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory I had with you before the world was. See, before becoming a human being, Jesus was fully divine. He possessed, Philippians tells us, the form of God. He was on the same level as the one he calls the Father. And yet, Philippians tells us that the life, the work, the role our Lord chose was to be a servant. The late uh, Dawson Trotman was the founder of the Navigator's Bible Study and Ministry. Maybe you've uh, heard about it before, served with it. As the story goes, he was visiting Taiwan one time on an overseas trip, had gone there to, to work with some ministries there. And during his visit, he was hiking with a, a Taiwanese pastor that he was friends with there. And they were going back into the mountain villages on foot to, to help uh, spread this form of Bible study and start new groups and expand the ministry there. And of course, it was uh, as the weather had it, his short trip was marked by rain day after day, and so the hiking and the trudging along through the mountain villages was as muddy as you can imagine. In one of the mountain villages, they met some national Christians. They got to do their Bible study, and then they made their way down the roads and trails back home, and their shoes got muddier and muddier. It's one of those days where mud starts sticking to the mud on the mud on your shoes. And later, somebody asked that Taiwanese pastor what he remembered most about Dawson Trotman. And he didn't describe his global ministry, his Bible study skills, or his leadership abilities. Without hesitation, the man replied, He cleaned my shoes. The most memorable thing about this Bible study leader who had come with him in the work of ministry was his service to him. And Jesus defined greatness, I've put in front of you as your first point. Jesus defined greatness not as serving, sorry, Jesus defined greatness as serving, not as dominating. And for all that we would imagine God to be, if we were to picture God, we would picture a God who has power like we would like it. A God who sits on a throne and rules like a despot, who has total rule and authority. And yet the key terms in Philippians 2 that go to describe the one who is himself God revealed to us begin with things like he did not consider equality with God something to be taken advantage of. 
But in verse 7, he emptied himself. I'm not sure if you know this or not, but there's somewhat of a scholarly debate about this word of what did Jesus empty himself? What exactly is it that he, he let go? Some answer the question that, that Jesus' pre-earthly existence meant that he had to empty himself of some of that divine nature before he could come down and be human. Some say that the pre-earthly Jesus chose to willingly forego all that he could have had if he remained with God. But you notice that the hymn doesn't say that he emptied himself of anything. It doesn't particularly explain what it is that he was emptied of, just that he emptied himself. In fact, the hymn suggests that this emptying was not so much because something was subtracted from him as if he poured out what was once inside. Instead, it says he emptied himself taking. That the way that Jesus emptied himself was by addition, taking the form of a servant. The word used here is the same word in verse 6, sometimes translated a slave, or the New American Standard has preferred bond servant to help you see the difference between different types of, of servants. But the point is the same, that the one who was inwardly and outwardly completely divine chose to become and to live like a servant, like a slave, inwardly and outwardly. Jesus took the form of a servant. You may know the story of John Newton. He was the captain of a slave ship, turned, uh, turned to God in that fearsome storm at sea, became a minister of the Church of England, uh, was greatly influenced by uh, people like John and Charles Wesley, their friend George Whitfield. He became a mentor to William Wilberforce, who was influential in ending slavery in Great Britain, and of course, his greatest legacy is that uh, he penned the words to the classic hymn, Amazing Grace. But he also left uh, a wonderful testimony on his tombstone. If you were to go to the burial place of John Newton today, you would see that it reads, Once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa was, by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. If you went to the burial place of John Newton and read his tombstone, you discover that grace did not set him free to serve no master. But that instead, when grace set him free, he became servant of a new master. And we think of freedom and power and these kinds of things as the release from any other authority. The one in the world who is the most powerful is the guy that answers to nobody. The Bible suggests, Jesus teaches, that to become powerful in the way that God is powerful, to exist in glory in the way that God exists in glory, is not to be free of anyone, but to give oneself to everyone. Jesus defined leadership as serving, not commanding. 
We're ready to appreciate now, knowing all of that, just the magnitude of the decision Jesus made in his pre-earthly state, that he did not consider equality with God something to be taken advantage of, something to be grasped, we sometimes translate it, something to be seized upon. See, the hymn is saying that in his pre-earthly state, Jesus didn't consider this equality with God something to be exploited. But instead, he he empties himself, taking the form of a servant, a slave. But why? Why did he choose to consider things that way? Part of the reason is our need. Of course, we need Jesus to make that descent, don't we? And part of the reason is our worth to him. He considers us worthy of his descent. That Jesus... I looked at us as rebellious and broken and, and sinful human beings, considered us worthy of emptying himself for. But you also notice that the hymn there in Philippians 2 doesn't even mention us, does it? It doesn't mention our need. It doesn't mention our worth, as wonderful as those things are. At the heart of the passage, what we read about instead is God himself. You see, as the Son of God is described as contemplating what it means to be equal to the Father, he comes to the conclusion that no one, except maybe the Father, would have expected. He comes to the conclusion that equality with God is not something to be taken advantage of, but is instead a means toward letting yourself go and taking the form of a servant. Did you hear that? Being like God means emptying yourself and taking the form of a servant. In a world where we make God into all kinds of things or imagine God to be like whatever we might imagine a God to be like, Jesus reminds us that when God showed up and took human flesh right in front of you, he displayed that the greatest quality of our God is that he allows himself to serve. The Son of God is contemplating, sitting in glory with God the Father, what it means to be God. And he comes to the conclusion that to be God is to be a servant. Now listen, you can find all kinds of good literature that teaches you why being a servant is fruitful in life. Servant leadership is actually kind of a, a its own genre of books these days. But servant leadership, because it works and because it might grow your company or because it makes you a better business or because it leads you the way that you ultimately want to go towards profit or whatever, servant leadership as a business principle has nothing to do with the servant leadership that Jesus exemplifies. Jesus doesn't come and say, you should be a servant because it would be more effective. People follow someone who does the work themselves also. Jesus comes and takes the form of a servant because sitting in glory with the Father, he decided that's what God is like. So when the Bible suggests that you ought to serve also, it's not because serving in the end will give you a greater reward. It's because serving in the end is the way that leads to the life that God gives us. Jesus says, That when he considers the form of God, 
the most appropriate way for him to express that to the people he comes to save is in emptying himself. That the most natural expression of, of who he is inwardly and outwardly is to be a servant, to accept the, the powerlessness of humanity, to die the common death of a criminal. Jesus saw that as his very job, his very role in this world. That his purpose and identity came not from the work that he did, but from those that he served. Jesus says, vocation, your job, your work, your identity is found in serving, not in being served. You see, if we started to view all of our life that way, suddenly it transforms the way we work, the way we worship, the way we uh, interact with our friends and our family. When our purpose, our identity, and whatever it is that we were doing, we do, as Paul says, work for it as if doing it unto the Lord and not for men. This is the heart of Christian service, that what we do in this life becomes an offering to God. The Son of God, who from all eternity is equal with the Father, understands being God looks like incarnation, servanthood, crucifixion. That means that the Son of God, who from all eternity was equal with the Father, understands that the best way to express being God to you and to me is with a cradle and a towel and a cross. And if that's who Jesus is, if that's what he tells me God is like, maybe I need to change my view of God. Maybe I need to let him change me. Jesus defined vocation as serving, not as being served. We expect God to be in charge so often when we picture him. He certainly is. But we picture the kind of in charge that our world gives us. Those who exercise authority. Those who make demands. Those who tell people to go there and they go there. Taking control. Getting things done. But the God we see in Jesus is also the God who wept at the tomb of his friend. The God we see in Jesus is the God, the Spirit, who groans without words for us. The God we see in Jesus is the one who, to demonstrate what his kind of power looks like, did the job of a slave and started washing everyone's feet. Jesus lives before us and shows us that one of the greatest characteristics of those who belong to the kingdom of God is service. What would it look like for you to imagine God that way? To know him for who he truly is. A God who said, when I made myself known, you found me looking like a servant. When God comes and looks, what does he find you looking like? If you were to imagine your service in this world or everything you're already doing as service to God and to others, how would your life change? How would you carry things a little different? How would you obey him a little better? The Princess Bride, the classic film that you have probably seen, begins at the home of Buttercup. Do you remember the father reading the story before they get into the imaginary land? The home of Buttercup, who is the future Princess Bride. And she has a little small, crude house at the beginning of the movie. It sits on a hill with a beautiful, sloping countryside as a backdrop. 
and through it dressed in uh, she's dressed in these drab brown clothes is clearly like a peasant girl among everybody else. But the first time we meet her, she's ordering other people around as if she were royalty. Another peasant, his name is Wesley, is one of the laborers on Buttercup's farm. The narrator says, Buttercup's greatest pleasure in life is telling him what to do. She refers to him as farm boy, doesn't even give him a name. And she makes generous use of that authority as she tells him what to do, where to go, what, what she needs. And yet, no matter how menial the task, Wesley always responds the same way. Anybody? As you wish. Farm boy, she says, polish my horse's saddle, as you wish. Farm boy, fill this with water, as you wish. Farm boy, fetch me that pitcher, as you wish. And though she is awfully condescending and cruel, he just shows up in that little scene, command after command, as a servant. He never refuses her demands, his attitude is kind and willing, the narrator reveals that one day Buttercup has a precious insight. He reads from the book, That day she was amazed to discover that when he was saying, as you wish, what he meant was, I love you. Jesus tells us to serve God by serving others. We spend so much time wondering, how can I make sure God knows that I love him? When all we need to do is hear his call to serve others. And to say to his call to service, as you wish. And In our obedience, Jesus suggests again and again that what God hears as we love others is, I love you too. Let's pray together. Father, in a world where we're told to protect ourselves or get what we can or make others listen to us, where a power is defined by who you can control or command, you teach us to make ourselves lower and to serve others in humility. We pray, Father, that just as the Son of Man came not to serve, not to be served, but to serve, and that you would teach us to have the hearts of servants. That the world would know who God is because they saw that glimpse of him in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.